Maybe this has happened to you, because I'll confess it's happened to me. You're lying in bed at night, and everything's quiet, and you get these cold chills that come over you, and there's a sense that there's something evil in the room with you. And if you're like me, um, you just kind of, you don't move. Your eyes just kind of start looking wherever you can see. You know, and then eventually you, you might lift the covers up a little bit and strain to look around the room. And when you find there's nobody or nothing that you can see that's skulking around in your room, you put your head back down on the pillow, and you may say something to this effect. Um, Satan, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. And then you put your head back down on the pillow, and you try to go back to sleep. Now, again, I don't know if that's been your experience, but I've certainly had that experience probably a time or two. Or maybe you've been in a worship service or in a revival service of some kind, and the pastor or the evangelist, uh, he gets up and he begins to pray. And as he's praying, he's, he's inviting the Holy Spirit to come and indwell that place and empower the people. You call him that on the name of Jesus that he might be glorified and magnified in that place. But then all of a sudden that prayer shifts to no longer talking about God and actually talking to Satan and the words something to the effect of Satan, we, we bind you from having influence here today or we rebuke you in the name of Jesus, flow out. Now, when we're listening to that, that sounds really super spiritual. I mean, it's, it sounds like you're taking the battle to Satan's front porch when you're doing something like that in the, in the midst of this time. And so, uh, again, it wouldn't surprise me if at some point I had not done something similar myself. Now, what we do know, we know that Jesus is greater than Satan. Jesus defeated the devil. He rebuked demons and he cast them out. And he even gave his apostles the authority to cast out demons as well. He sent them out doing miracles and casting out demons. Now, knowing this... The question I want us to consider this morning, and it actually started out to be just this morning, but it's going to drift over to at least next Sunday morning because there was just so much involved in this. But the question I'd like us to consider this morning is not whether it is appropriate or practiced that we as believers could cast out, uh, not cast out demons, but bind Satan or rebuke Satan, uh, but whether that is actually biblical. Because really, that's what we need to know. What do the scriptures say? Because that's what we want to conform our pattern to. And so, here we go. This may or may not fit with the way that you have experienced or uh, in your own personal church experience, in your own life experience, or maybe the teachings that you have listened to or been exposed to. But I want to point out to you, beginning today, uh, what God's word says that we are called to do and not to do when it comes to spiritual warfare. And so I'm just going to take this methodically, and I hope that you'll follow along. You'll notice all you have is blanks to fill out in your handout. There's, no, there's no, uh, nothing hinted there. So uh, if you want to write these out as each I go through each point, then you can do that this morning. And the first point is this, uh, real simple. <clears throat> Evil is real. Now, I probably don't have to spend a lot of time convincing you that evil is real. But there are some who deny that evil exists. 
A recent article I read in Slate.com presented scientists who argue that the very concept of evil should be dealt with, gotten rid of completely. Matter of fact, the categories of good and evil, according to some scientists, should be eliminated. Evil, they tend, instead of being a moral issue, is instead a neurological glitch. A person's bad actions are not the result of some moral decision-making, but rather, these scientists argue, is an issue of something rewiring of their brain that's just not quite right, and that causes them to act in such a way. Again, I'm not endorsing that. I'm just telling you that is out there. There's also, a, in the philosophical realm, an argument that the categories of good and evil are, are not accurate at all. In fact, what we would hear from some uh, philosophers and from some sociologists would be that we just created those things. There really is no such thing as something that's good or something that's bad or evil. In fact, everything is is really relative. What I might consider good, you might not. What I might consider evil, you might think of something else as being evil. And therefore, to even enter into the discussion of good and evil is basically a moot point. Now, while I would agree that many of the people that we read about and see on the news who commit evil acts do very likely have something wrong going on up here. I'll admit that. And I will also admit that when choosing right and wrong, sometimes there aren't really neat little categories. And that's why we have things like choosing the greater good or choosing the lesser evil. Sometimes, sometimes there are a little bit of shades of gray that we can argue about. But having said all that, the reality of evil to anybody who's conscious should be self-evident. Now, if you don't believe me, ask the wife who has been beaten unmercifully by her husband or the girlfriend who has been beaten by her boyfriend. Ask them if evil exists. Ask the mother whose son was shot down in some senseless gang violence if evil exists exists. Ask the sixth grader who hates going to school because she is constantly being teased and taunted and even abused because she wears glasses or has an overbite or has unruly hair. Or the sixth grade boy who is being constantly harassed because he's overweight, or because his facial features just aren't quite right, or he has a speech impediment. Ask them if evil exists. Ask the parents of those women and those girls who were abducted by the Islamic militant group Boko Haram to be sold into slavery and forcefully converted to Islam. Ask them if evil exists. I believe evil is real because I think it's pretty much self-evident to anyone 
who thinks. But I also believe evil is real because it's biblical. Just begin to read through your Bible. As some of you have been doing this year and as some of you do on a regular basis. And you're confronted from Genesis to Revelation with incident after incident after incident after incident that is called by God evil. I've just finished uh, in the, the pattern that I'm using in reading through the Bible in a year. I just finished up with 2 Kings. Now, one of the things you discover when you're reading in those books, those historical books, that start mentioning all those kings is there's a pretty steady rotation of guys in and out of that job. But most of them have one thing in common. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, sometimes they weren't as evil as Jeroboam, son of Nebat. But they were pretty bad nonetheless. Occasionally, you run into one who said, okay, this one was better. Now, he didn't do everything right, but he was at least better than the other guy before him. But what you don't see in the Bible is a redefining of evil. There is a real presentation that evil exists. So hopefully we have gotten that issue cleared up to a certain extent. The second point is this. The devil is real. Not only is evil real, the devil is real. And again, I I read an article in preparation for this. I read an article from a pastor in a small church in Texas. Now, this pastor says that he does not believe in a real devil. Now, he acknowledges. He acknowledges that if you look in the pages of Scripture, there are repeated references to the devil, to Satan, to Lucifer, to the serpent, and other references such as that. He acknowledges that they are there. But still, he does not believe in them. In fact, his take is that these, this concept of the devil was actually borrowed a long, long time ago from the Persians and brought into Scripture. Needless to say, I won't be recommending that church to anyone moving to Texas, okay? That was his take. Even though the Bible says there's, there's a devil, that you really can't buy that. That, that. That's not accurate at all. Now, why do I believe that the devil exists? It is, I've never met him to my knowledge. I've never met him. And so I don't have that personal one-to-one experience. And and it's not because I've had a couple of nights where I've been alone in the house and I felt kind of an evil presence maybe in the room with me. That's that's not why I believe the devil exists. That's all circumstantial. Why do I believe the devil exists? I believe the devil exists because he is portrayed as a very real, a very real being of immense power and immense evil. And you can begin reading in Genesis, and you find in the garden that Satan comes as a serpent. And you can read in Revelation that his final destination is a lake of fire. And in between, you can see what he was up to. You're not going to read the pages of Scripture if you're going to take God's word seriously and come away believing that the devil is somehow something that parents made up to keep their kids in line. But instead, you'll come to the realization 
that there's a very real being. And people may argue a lot about what he looks like, what he acts like. People may argue about it. But there's a very real being called the devil. Point number three is this. Spiritual warfare is real. Now, when I started out and you said, well, if he's going to question this concept of binding Satan, not telling you where I'm coming down on it, but just the fact that he's even bringing it up. Maybe I've got a pastor who doesn't believe in spiritual warfare. Well, I don't think you can read the Bible and come away thinking that there's no spiritual warfare. In fact, I think we do ourselves a great disservice when we do not recognize that we are in a spiritual battle zone from the moment we wake up in the morning to the moment we go to bed at night. And all around the clock, 24 hours a day, spiritual warfare is taking place. Now, you and I, we get to see warfare up close and personal because it's on the news all the time, isn't it? There's always fighting going on somewhere, and, and, and you get a chance to see missiles dropping into Gaza or missiles dropping into Tel Aviv. You get a chance to see this. I never will forget when the first Gulf War took place. It was, in fact, the first live televised war that we'd ever been exposed to. In fact, we got a chance to go in briefings and see military footage from jet aircraft of, of, of wave after wave of missiles being dropped and the destruction that was taking place. And who'll forget what Peter Arnett, live in Baghdad, when you know, all the flares going through the sky and the bombs dropping, who'll forget that we got a chance to see it, to be spectators in a war. But too many of us are spectators in a spiritual war. We're sitting there pretending that everything is just fine when all behind the spiritual curtain, spiritual warfare is taking place and we are completely disengaged and unprepared. And this is why God calls us to put on the full armor of God. Not bits and pieces, not the pieces that I think are flashiest or most important, not the easiest things and the most comfortable things, but to put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Well, we could just stop right there because how many of us have so many struggles that are just flesh and blood struggles? It's all about the argument I just had. It's all about the person who did me wrong. It's all about this person over here that's holding a grudge or maybe this person right here who's holding a grudge. It's all about these interpersonal relationships and these personal struggles that we have with with one another. All the time being completely unaware there's a spiritual battle taking place. And we are running around in the spiritual equivalent of a speedo in the middle of a war. Some of you will carry that image for the rest of your life. (laughs) Good. Okay, what does it say? Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, he's just told you what the battlefield looks like. 
Therefore, put on the full armor of God so when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything, to stand. Stand. But I'm telling you, you're not going to stand long in the spiritual equivalent of a speedo. You need the full armor of God. And I encourage you, perhaps this afternoon, to go and look in Ephesians chapter 6 and pick up with verse 14 and begin reading on and discover what the pieces of that armor are. We don't have time to do all that this morning, but I just encourage you, it's kind of your homework, to go and discover what it is that we are told to put on. What does the full armor of God look like? Now, why is it so important that we be ready for a spiritual battle? It leads us to the fourth point, which is this. The devil is our adversary and our accuser. This is what Scripture teaches us about Satan. He is our adversary and he is our accuser. We're told in 1 Peter 5, 8, be alert and of sober mind, that means clear thinking, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, th- this is interesting because a roaring lion, if, if you ever get to watch the National Geographic channels, any of these science shows, nature shows, what you'll discover about lions is they'll roar from time to time in a distance, but when they are stalking prey, they are quiet. The roar that they elicit when they are stalking prey is just as they're about to pounce. Why? Because the roar paralyzes the would-be victim. The roar catches them by surprise, freezes them for a moment, and makes them fall prey. Now, why then this, this passage Because I want to tell you that you and I are dumber than gazelles. Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion. Making a big noise. And we treat it as if it is nothing. Even the gazelle knows what the roar means. But we don't even hear it. And so what we're told is we have an adversary. We have someone who is after us. Anyone who belongs to Jesus is made a mortal enemy of Satan. Now, it would be true to say that Satan hates everything that God created. But it would be most true to say that Satan hates the new creation of God more than anything. Why? Because he knows that we who belong to Jesus, and that may include most of us in this room, but may not include all of us. Think clearly and soberly about that. That we who belong to Jesus will be standing with God the Father, safe and secure in his presence, while Satan is tossed into the lake of fire for all eternity. He knows that. We are his enemy. He hates us. With passion, he is our adversary. But he is also our accuser. 
in Revelation 12:10, the devil is referred to as the accuser of brothers and, of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night. This is a ceaseless activity of Satan. You see, guilt and shame are two of Satan's primary weapons. When he's bringing out the big guns, guilt and shame. Now, if the devil cannot have our souls and if you belong to Christ, your soul is secure in Christ, the next best course of action is to neuter you, to make you feel ashamed, to make you burdened down by guilt because a guilty, burdened, shame-filled Christian will in no way be bold and fruitful in their lives. You will be doing exactly what Adam and Eve did. You will be shivering in the bushes. You will be hiding because what you're doing is you're listening. Instead of listening to the truth of God that says you are forgiven, you are accepted in the beloved, you are his precious possession. You are the pearl of great price. You are the treasure found in a field. Instead of listening to all these things that God is trying to tell you about who you are in Christ, you begin to listen to what the evil world begins to whisper in your ears. I know what you did last night. saw what you did when you logged on to your computer at home when nobody was there. Hey, I, I saw you give that person that walked up to you nothing but the brush off when all he asked for was, could you buy me a meal here at McDonald's? I saw that. And all these little things that accumulate in life because as James tells us, we all stumble in many ways, okay? None of us have made it yet. We're not there. We still sin in word and deed and thought. And that's exactly what the devil and his hordes want to use to bring you down. Because you see, Satan is all about condemnation. But God's word says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What does the Holy Spirit want to do? Holy Spirit wants to convict us. And what's the purpose of conviction? To get us to turn back to God. To confess and turn back. What is the purpose of condemnation? To shove us in the bushes. To keep us unfruitful. To keep us weak and timid. And so these are two of Satan's big guns that he pulls out against us. For he is the accuser constantly trying to put our sin out there for public display so that we might shut up and go away. Fifth point is this. The devil, unlike God, is not omniscient, omnipresent, or omnipotent. Or omnipotent. I'm confusing myself. Omnipotent. But you can say omnipotent if you'd like. Let me define these words for you. Omniscient means to know everything. 
No, that's not your husband. You may call him a know-it-all, but that's not the same thing. Omniscient means to know everything. Omnipresent means to be everywhere all at once. And omnipotent means to be all-powerful. Now, here's the deal. God is all of those. Satan is none of those. God is all of those. Don't be confused. Satan is none of those. Is, does Satan have knowledge that you and I don't have? Absolutely. But he doesn't have all knowledge. Does, does Satan, do, can he be places, maybe zapping himself from here to there? Maybe, I don't know. But he can't be all places at once. He's powerful, but he's not all powerful. Don't ever assume that God and, and the devil are like two equally matched heavyweights going toe-to-toe for the souls of humanity. The devil is a loser and a liar. He has been defeated. And the resurrection, we talked about the weapon Satan has, guilt and shame. Let me tell you what. Jesus ripped out of Satan's hands the most potent and powerful weapon that he had against humanity, and that is the fear of death. He took it away. For to me, to live is Christ, but to die is what? Gain. To live is Christ. When I, the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the one who loved me and gave himself for me. But when I check out, Satan and win, he loses again. To die is actually gain. It's better than what I had beforehand. So what do we do with the devil? Do we rebuke him? Do we attempt to bind him? What does the scripture say? And this is going to be the last point we cover today. And then we'll pick up because I want to tell you, precisely what the scripture tells us to do when it comes to Satan. James chapter 4, verses 7 and 8 will tell us we are to submit ourselves to God and resist the devil. And here's the verses. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Now I want you to notice these are verses of contrast. This is James 4, 7 and the first half of 4, 8. These verses, look at the contrast here. You'll see in here that we are to submit ourselves to God. Now, what does it mean to submit yourself to God? I'm going to give you a really simple lay definition for what it means because what you're going to find is the book of James is eminently practical. Okay, here's what it means to submit yourself to God. Exactly what we prayed at the beginning. Whatever it is, God, yes. It's just saying, submitting yourself to God is agreeing that his way is best and just saying yes. That's what it means to submit to God. What does it mean to resist the devil? Exactly the opposite. You just wag your little finger. No, 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 no. No. Say no to what the devil wants in your life. Submit yourself to God, say yes to him. Submit yourself to the devil, say no to him. When you agree with God, 
then you're submitting yourself to God and resisting the devil. When you choose to wander away into sin, you're submitting yourself to the devil. So you need to think about this. This is, this is, this is not some, these aren't mystical verses, magical incantations. This is very practical. You submit yourself to God by saying yes to him. You resist the devil by saying no to him. Could it get any easier than that? Now, two contrasts in how we're to respond, one to God and the other to Satan. Here's the other contrast. When we submit ourselves to God, he comes near to us. When we resist the devil, he runs away. When we submit ourselves to God, he comes near. When we resist the devil, he flees. But that brings up some interesting issues that we're going to begin to tackle. For instance, when the Bible says it would resist the devil, or when it says that your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking uh, for someone to devour, does it mean that Satan is literally hanging around you 24 hours a day trying to push your buttons, trying to foul up your life? And here's the reason I ask this. It's just, just natural. Um, I have, I saw someone walk outside the church office carrying a load of stuff and they dropped their stuff. And so they immediately said, Satan, get away from here. I'm thinking, weren't you carrying too much stuff? I mean, isn't there such a thing called gravity and common sense that might've permitted, prevented that you're going to blame Satan for that. I, you know, like Satan's, you know, kind of bunching up the carpet in front of you as you walk, or he's just walking behind you, knocking stuff off the counters just to get your goat. Okay. Now I want you to begin to think about this because that's our picture of what's going on, that we've got this little, um, guy in a red flannel suit and horns and a pitchfork, and he's just hanging around, just poking us every chance that he gets. Is that a biblical concept? I want you to wrestle with these issues. So does it mean that Satan is hanging around each one of us just trying to foul up our lives? Well, if that were so, he would be omnipresent. He'd be everywhere all at once. Now, I'm not saying that he can't be multiple places at once. I'm not saying that. He might be able to, but he's not God. He can't be everywhere all the time. And this is a pretty big world with billions of people on it. To think that he is at your house causing your cats to chew up the paperback book that you've been reading is a little bit egocentric. Think about it. He can't be everywhere all the time. So, what do the biblical writers mean? That you have Satan's prowling around like a roaring lion. Let me just give you two things and we're going to close it down. First of all, the devil gets around. He does get around. And we see this in Job chapter 1. The Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? And then Satan answered to the Lord and he said, from roaming, roaming about the earth and walking around on it. In other words, he gets around. So he is not stationary. He's getting around and he is doing stuff. Okay, but he can't be everywhere at once. Well, what else do we know? We know that Satan has some help. In fact, when Satan fell from heaven, 
third of the angels fell with him. How many is that? I don't know, but it's a bunch. They're what we call fallen angels or demons. Now, those rascals are all over the place. And they may be causing your cat to eat your paperback. I don't know. But we know that they're up to mischief. In other words, it may not be Satan himself, the entity, the devil himself who's doing this to you, but he has hordes of demonic helpers who are constantly doing his work and his will. In the New Testament, we find demons possessing non-believers and harassing believers. They are active and they are working. In other words... They have Satan's agenda. So when we resist their effort, we are literally resisting Satan. In other words, when it says that we are to resist the devil, it is not just the solitary individual called Satan that we are to resist. We are to resist all those who are on his agenda in the spiritual realm. Now, I don't know, we, we can't get a lot further with this today. I, I just want to let you know, next Sunday, we're going to pick right back up. But what I'm trying to do is not to convince you or argue with you about anything. What I want you to do is take a really solid look at Scripture and to think outside maybe your cultural perspective or your church perspective or the books that you've read. And the reason this is important, last week I suggested a book about the spiritual realm I suggested uh, Frank Peretti's This Present Darkness. And what you'll see in there, remember, you've got to remember, it's a work of fiction, okay? What you're going to see in there is, is his understanding of what's taking place in the spiritual realm. But you'll also have characters in that book who are rebuking the devil. Now, just because I said read the book, I told you to read it for one purpose, to give you a kind of a picture of what might be going on in the spiritual realm. It is fiction, don't take it as, and put it on the level of, you know, Colossians or something and take it as scripture. Anytime you read a fictional work, take it as fiction, even if the person may be using some sanctified imagination to put it together. But we need to understand that we have a real enemy. And our call today, this is where we need to take out of here. Our call today is very simple. Submit to God and resist the devil. And usually when you're doing one, guess what? you're automatically doing the other. Think about it. When you're saying yes to God, you're automatically saying no to Satan's agenda. So what is it that God is calling you to do today that he's waiting for a yes from you? For some of you, you've been struggling with a decision to follow Christ. And today you've heard a really simple explanation of what God wants. He wants you to say yes. He wants you to say, I'll follow you, Jesus. He wants you to confess your sins and turn to Christ with all your heart. And what does Satan want? He doesn't want you to do that. In fact, he may be whispering, or one of his horde may be whispering in your ear right now, you're not good enough for that. You need to get yourself cleaned up first before you do anything like that. If you come, everybody here knows your past. They know what you're like. Hey, your wife knows what you're like. You're not fooling anybody. This isn't real. All these things tumbling around in your mind just like socks in a dryer. 
going round and round and round. And all God's saying is, come, come, desiring that you say yes. For some of you, it may be connecting with the life of a local church. You know God called you to be connected, and yet you haven't done that. And today God's called, excuse me, God's spoken to your heart. He's called you, and he wants to hear a yes. For some of you, for some of you, it may be some things that you brought in here today. And when I started mentioning things that we could feel guilt and shame about, bells started going off, whistles started going off, and you recognized, you know what, that's me. I'm the believer who's burdened by guilt. I'm the believer who's shackled by shame. That's me. And I don't like it. Submit yourself to God. Come near to God and he'll come near to you. If you go on and finish reading that passage, it talks about washing your hands. It talks about making yourself clean. How do you do that? You don't do it yourself. Only Jesus does it. And maybe you need to come today in repentance. And you, you don't have to tell me what it is, but you need, need to come and get rid of it. Confess it and leave it here and walk away free from that guilt and those shame, those chains that have been binding you. Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil. Say yes to the Lord and no to the evil one.